1: a R T O F M A N. Podsurvey.com slash Art of Man. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. To achieve your goals, you probably think you need one key ingredient willpower, grit, Self control, discipline. To hear a lot of self improvement gurus tell it, if you want to get your life together, then just get it together. Just do it. Yet while these motivational calls certainly feel good and make us pump our fist up in the air, how well does willpowering your way to your goals work in reality? For like a lot of people who have a string of half-finished aims heaped in the dustbin of their lives, you know the answer is probably not very well. My guest today argues that there's a reason for that, that while willpower does have a role in our lives, there's actually a better source of motivation at our disposal, our emotions. His name is David Destino, and he's the author of the book, Emotional Success, The Power of Gratitude, Compassion, and Pride. Today, Destino makes the case that cultivating certain emotions will actually enhance our self-control and help us become who we want to be more than simply relying on willpower to get the job done. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash emotional success. David joins me now via Skype. David DeCino, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thanks for having me on.
1: So uh, you got a new book out. It's called Emotional Success: The Power of Gratitude, Compassion, and Pride. So the the problem you're you're trying to tackle in this book is that as human beings we have a tendency we we have to resist immediate temptations in favor of long term goals. If we want to you know save money, get a job, etc., but that's hard to do. What makes resisting temptations in favor of long term goals so difficult?
2: Well, the brain kind of has this, people call it a glitch, and I think in, in our modern world it is a glitch built into it where we tend to discount the value of the future, you know, and at low levels, valuing rewards or gains in the present over gains in the future makes some sense, you know, a bird in the hand, I know I've got something today versus trying to strive for something in the future can can be Okay. The problem is, as the world has gotten a lot more certain over time. You know, now if I, I know that if I enjoy smoking a cigarette, I can enjoy it now, but it's going to cause me problems later. If I enjoy smoking, e- eating something now, it's going to cause me problems later. That's high fat. If I spend all my money on the new iPhone now, I can enjoy that now, but it's going to do me you know, wonders if I put it into my 401k in the long term. Because the world is more sure of, of what the long term is going to bring investing in the long term sacrificing pleasures in the short term is a really important strategy for success you know you see it in uh, things like the concept grit where we have to persevere to now sacrifice practice hard develop our skills whether it's athletics or abilities at work to to persevere in the long run that surely predicts success but because our mind still has this glitch which wasn't a glitch evolutionarily speaking, in the bygone days, but is now, we're just built, it's just built into us to, to want what we want in the moment and to enjoy it and to not place as much emphasis on what the future will bring given some sacrifice in the moment.
1: Right. So that's why it, what makes losing weight hard, because that brownie, It tastes really good now. Yeah.
2: And, you know, it it made sense, right? In the old days when you weren't sure there was going to be a nice high fat, high sugar thing to eat tomorrow. Why not eat two or three of them right now if you had them? But as you're saying, where things are more available to us, that's a problem. But we still have this bias built in to, you know, watch TV rather than go to the gym to spend money rather than save it.
1: So the typical approach, whenever, say, we have a long term goal, but we have these immediate temptations that can throw us off track is we use willpower like we exert ourselves we use discipline and flagellate ourselves and put on hair shirts and things like that <laughs> um, but why you argue that that doesn't really work very well why not in despite yeah. that being the typical approach most people take
2: yeah it doesn't and it's you know it's not just my opinion if you if you look at the data out there so psychologists, would conduct studies where they'd follow people in their daily lives for weeks at a time um, using mobile technology. And what they found is that, you know, one out of every five times we try to resist a temptation that's getting in the way of a long term goal, we fail. And if we're tired or we're stressed or we're busy, that temp, that, those stats are even worse. And for really meaningful goals, things that we really care about, it's abysmal. So I'll give you an example. You know, 8% of New Year's resolutions are kept till the end of that year. 25% are gone by the first week. And so it's, I think it's, it's just objectively true that, that we have a problem with self-control because of that glitch built in. And, and why is it that problem? It's because this strategy of kind of using willpower, trying to convince ourselves that saving money, that eating healthy is that studying or working hard to develop a skill that'll get you ahead at work is using willpower to get there is the right way. We're using tools that are fragile and that are are potentially really harmful. So besides the fact that they fail quite often, one thing that we know is we often talk ourselves out of things. We often forgive ourselves for our for our failure. So you know one thing we study in my lab is cheating. And what we'll find is that, you know, if people are given a task where they can cheat on something, they'll cheat 90% of the time on these little things. You know, so we basically say, here's a coin, flip the coin. If you get heads, you're going to do this fun task. If you do tails, you're going to do this god-awful long task. And then we leave them alone. And what we find is that, you know, 90% of them report that they got the short task right which is just statistically impossible but we watch them on hidden video anyway what happens is they don't flip the coin they just tell us they did and if you ask them later how did you behave what people will say is oh yeah I, I behaved fairly but if you have them watch somebody else cheat in exactly the same way they'll they'll condemn them for it right that's hypocrisy right there and what we find out is that if we have them make that decision of whether or not what they did was fair uh, when they actually did cheat if we prevent them from engaging in kind of reason or rationalization, they actually know what they did was unfair. But if we give them a few minutes to think about it, they'll create a story for why it was okay. They'll say, well, normally I wouldn't cheat, but you know, today I had an appointment that I just couldn't be late for. Or, you know, that guy who was sitting next to me, I kid you not, they said, the guy who was sitting next to me, I know those long problems had to do with like math and logic, and he looked like he was an engineering major. And so if I gave myself the easy task, I know he was going to get the other one, and he'd probably be happier getting that long task. Um, And so, you know, this is a long-winded way of saying what we do is we convince ourselves why it's okay to give in, why it's okay to eat the extra brownie, why it's okay to not go to the gym, why we deserve to spend our money rather than save it. And if we do that, then we're not even going to bother to invoke willpower in the first place, even though it is fragile. And so I, I, I think relying on this idea that humans are like computers where we, if we just use logic, we can convince ourselves to do the right thing. And if we have enough willpower, we will, is a really misguided premise.
1: Okay, so let's recap there. So when we exercise willpower, is that like an executive function? Like we have to think about it and use our reason in order to apply it. Is that?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, willpower basically comes from exactly what you're saying. This part of the mind that that we psychologists term executive function. You know, it's named really well. The mental executive is kind of like the boss at work. He tells all the subordinates what they should do. And so what you're doing is you're like, yeah. I really don't want to go to the gym. I really want to stay home and watch TV or go out to dinner or whatever it might be. But I know I should, and so I'm going to force myself to do it. And the problem there is your body is always in a state of tension. You, you have one thing that you want to do that you are trying to overrule. And what that does is it causes stress. And we know that over time, stress in the body causes a lot of negative health outcomes. And so there's this really great study by a guy named Greg Um Greg Miller at Northwestern in Chicago, where he looked at kids from disadvantaged backgrounds who were kind of using willpower and executive function to kind of get ahead academically and in life. And what he found is that yeah, they were able to do it, but there was a cost because of the stress that they were under and always trying to suppress desires to do something else. They had premature aging of their immune systems, which ultimately means, yeah, you're succeeding, but you're not gonna be around as long to enjoy it. And so I think this idea of relying on willpower means we're always in stress, we're always in conflict with our desires, and it fails and it takes a toll on us. And I don't think it's the most useful and robust way to achieve our goals. Yeah, I
1: thought that was one of the more most fascinating insights from the book because you know before the show I was talking to you that as a young man I always like I was all about I was a willpower junkie I thought it was mm-hmm. great you know using your executive function being self disciplined as you said it's in the long run it doesn't work but then also it can work against you because you you start rationalizing oh yeah uh, there's a reason why I didn't do the right thing and it's a good good reason because. My brain says it's a good reason
2: right. exactly. we have and that's why you see that hypocrisy result. We have no idea no no motive to rationalize other people's behavior, but we'll rationalize our own because we don't want to assume that we're flawed in some way or deficient in some way. And this is why when I see people like like Jordan Peterson out there saying, stand up, pull your shoulders back, do the right thing. I'm like, yeah, well, do the right thing is 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 useful. But the way you're telling people, you're, you know, you're setting themselves up to fail, right? You know, for exactly the reasons you're talking about.
1: Okay. Well, so if rationality or willpower doesn't work in the long run what does, I mean, you are, I guess you argue emotions do, but people, when people think emotions, they think, well, that's the stuff that gets in the way of our long-term goals. Because when I get angry or I'm hungry or I'm sad, then I don't do the thing I know I need to do.
2: That's right. And, and, and I'm not saying all emotions do. And this is why I think the common view out there is willpower is good. Emotions are bad when it comes to being gritty or having self-control or pursuing your goals. There are certainly some emotions that focus you on pleasures of the moment, you know, um, desire, Lust, anger, these are things that certainly work that way. But there are other emotions that haven't been studied that do exactly the opposite. And what I like to tell people is think about the time that you have experienced what I call social emotions or moral emotions, things like gratitude or compassion. These are emotions that make you willing to sacrifice for other people. When you feel grateful to someone, you'll go way out of your way to pay them back even at cost to yourself. When you feel compassion for someone, you'll give them time, money, resources versus a shoulder to cry on things that all aren't fun for you to give in the moment but you do because you're investing in them. And these emotions what we're finding now not only make you willing to sacrifice to help other people but also they make you willing to sacrifice your own future sacrifice to help your own future self.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about. So let's talk about the these emotions, gratitude, compassion and pride. Let's start with gratitude. Sure. How is it that the feeling of gratitude, you talked about there, whenever people experience gratitude to someone else, they're more willing to do things for them and, and, and sacrifice themselves. Sure. How does that work towards yourself? Like, Do you feel grateful for yourself and then you're more likely to do good things for yourself?
2: Yeah, no, no. So yeah, good question. Let me let me give you an example. So one of the classic studies out there, which I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with on, on self-control is, is uh, what's called the marshmallow test. It's a study done by by a psychologist named Walter Mischel in the 70s. And what he showed is that if you put one marshmallow down in front of a child, he would say, okay, you can have this now if, I, if I'm if i going to go away and do something. If you can wait till I get back, you can have two. And this is a common dilemma we all face that's called intertemporal choice, right? It's something that I can have right now in the moment that feels good, or if I can exert some self-control, I can have a bigger reward later. So for us, we wanted to do this study with gratitude, except we work with adults, and most adults don't like marshmallows, but they do like cash. And so we would bring them into the lab and we would have them reflect on something that made them feel grateful, reflect on something that made them feel happy, or just tell us about the events of their normal day. And then we would offer them different amounts of cash. You could have $35 now or $75 in three weeks and lots of questions like this. And we had them answer these questions and we told them we'd pick one at random and and honor it. So you could have the $35 now, if that's what you said, or $75 in three weeks. And what we found is just like kids, most adults are impatient. They don't have self-control. Most adults would say, yeah, I'll I'll take $17 now rather than $100 in a year, which I don't know about you, but it If you don't need that $17 to survive, an investment that will quintuple in a year is a pretty good investment. But if we made them feel grateful, they wouldn't take that deal. Suddenly, they became much more future-oriented. They discounted the value of the future less. They required over $30 before they'd take that deal. And so what gratitude is doing is it's preventing the, the human mind's normal bias, to discount the value of the future. That is, it it makes us value the future more. And if we value the future more, it becomes easier to persevere toward it. Suddenly, we're not kind of trying to overrule a desire for pleasure in the moment. We're valuing the future more, and so it becomes easier and less stressful to persevere toward it. So why does it work this way? Well, for millennia, right, what made humans a success was that we had good character. We had strong relationships. If you wanted to partner with someone, you had to be fair, you had to be honest, you had to pay back your debts. And emotions like gratitude were what made us do that. The way it does that is it makes us value rewards in the future over rewards in the moment. And it does the same thing with any type of long-term gain, even those that don't affect anybody but our own future selves. And so since that time, we see people who are grateful. They show less addictive behaviors. They have better savings. They exercise more. They'll study harder. They'll procrastinate less. All of these things that focus us on the future.
1: Well, it's kind of weird because that gratitude makes us focus on the future because gratitude, often when you think of being grateful, you're looking in the past and saying, well, I'm grateful for that thing that
2: happened. That's exactly right. But if, if you think about the reason the human mind has emotions, if they're focused on the past, it's not useful. That's done. The reason we have emotions is because because they're designed to shape what we do next. They're designed to influence our behavior in an adaptive manner. So, you know, if you're feeling frightened and you're in a dangerous environment, when you feel that fear, it makes you much more careful. It makes you much more ready to respond on the threats. So what about gratitude? Well, if you think about it this way, so if you gave me $10 today and I borrowed it from you and I didn't pay you back, I'd be ahead 10 bucks, But over time, if I didn't pay you back, you would never want to interact with me again. And so I would lose all the aggregated gains and benefits I would have from having you as a partner throughout the rest of my life. And those certainly outweigh the $10 that I've got in the moment. And so what gratitude does is, yes, I'm grateful to you for something in the past, but the reason I feel that emotion is because it makes me more willing to then pay you back, which ensures my future success by keeping that relationship strong.
1: That's crazy. So is it just as simple as you just start keeping a gratitude journal and eventually you start seeing yourself have more
2: self-control? Yeah. In fact, we we followed people. Uh, we didn't do gratitude journals, but we followed people through three weeks of their daily life. And we charted every day the intensity of gratitude they felt and the intensity of happiness they felt and other emotions. And then at the end of that time, we gave them a, another financial task like this, where they could have small financial financial rewards right then we'd hand them cash, or they could have larger financial rewards if they were willing to wait. And we found in a very kind of dose dependent way, you know, the more gratitude people felt in their daily lives, the more self-control, the more patience they had, the more willing they were to say, you know what, I'll wait for the longer reward for the larger reward rather than taking it in the moment now. And what that suggests then is If daily gratitude predicts your self-control, then if we can amp up your daily gratitude, you're going to have more self-control. And so we're doing those studies now where we can actually look up people if we have them daily reflect on things for which they're grateful for, make it a normal part of their daily life. Should that increase self-control? It should. There's data out there already suggesting it. It lowers addictive behaviors. It increases exercise, all the things that we associate with self-control.
1: And the nice thing about feeling grateful is like unlike willpower where you can kind of deplete it you know, quote-unquote run out it's fra- it's not fragile like you can have more and more and more
2: right you're right it doesn't it doesn't run out it's not a, it's not a contest between opposing you know values in them and values in the mind when you feel grateful it just makes you value the long term more and the other thing is i like to say a habit of gratefulness is way better than any other habit you can have. So we all know that developing habits is one way to foster success. If I develop a habit to study, it's going to make me more willing to study rather than not study. If I develop a habit to put money away every week, it's going to make me save money. But the problem with that is a habit that you devise to help you study or to save money or to go to the gym is only useful for that one thing. So a habit I have that makes me go to the gym isn't going to help me with saving money. But if you make it a habit to cultivate gratitude in your daily life, it benefits all of those long-term decisions. Any decision you face where there's a long-term reward, it makes you value it more and it makes you persevere toward it. And so I like to think of it as kind of a, a booster shot for self-control, all types of self-control dilemmas that you're going to face.
1: That's awesome. Well, let's move on to the next one, compassion. I think that's a, maybe a virtue or emotion that a lot of people might understand. Like, How is compassion different from say empathy? Is there a difference?
2: Yeah people you know in the in the common vernacular people often use them interchangeably but scientifically what we mean now by empathy and compassion are different things so empathy is my ability to understand and feel what you're feeling so if i have a lot of empathy and i'm next to someone sa- who's sad i'm going to feel their sadness if i'm next to someone who's happy i'm going to feel their ha- their happiness compassion is different compassion is an emotion that's focused on helping someone who is in distress and the important thing there is to help them i don't have to feel their distress so you know the the buddhists make a big distinction between empathy and compassion because if you are always feeling people's pain overall over time what that's going to do is burn you out and you see this among healthcare workers a lot of the time people will have what they call compassion fatigue if you're working with people who are always in distress stress, you burn out because you're feeling their pain. And suddenly you start trying to protect yourself from that because it's overwhelming. But compassion, you don't have to feel someone else's pain. All you have to do is care about them and want to help them. And what, again, what we're showing that does is in the same way, if I feel compassion for someone, I will devote time, money, and effort at some cost to myself to help them. If you have compassion and self compassion for yourself, what that makes you do is more willing to help your own future self so hal hirschfeld who's a psychologist at uh, ucla has got this great data where he shows that uh, he takes people's faces and he'll so you know if you take the average 23 year old and he'll age more of their face to show them what they might look like at 70. and when he shows people what they might look like at 70 suddenly they're more willing to divert money to their retirement accounts than they are to spend it on you know a, a new pair of jeans or a, or a new smartphone and even more, if he then alters that image of that future you looks kind of sad, they'll give even more. And because what it's doing is it's making you feel compassion for future you. Suddenly it's making that real. And so what we find is that when people feel more compassion in their daily lives. They're more, again, willing to value the long-term, to save money, to behave in ways, to procrastinate less, to work harder. Uh, because subconsciously, not that they're consciously thinking about this, but subconsciously, it makes them more willing to accept sacrifices now that will benefit them in the future. It basically gives them grit from the bottom up. So, just to clarify, compassion
1: doesn't mean like you're letting people off the hook or yourself off the hook necessarily. You can acknowledge like no, you did yeah, something no, no, wrong. Because no, right. I think a lot of that's like I think a lot of men, in particular, like compassion is kind of wussy because you're just like letting people yeah. not be responsible for their mistakes or whatever.
2: No, no, true. So, so it's, it's funny that again the, the the Buddhists have this term what they call idiot compassion versus true compassion. And idiot compassion is just giving in to make somebody feel good just because they're upset. And you're right. Sometimes people have to be upset or face difficulties to get to develop the skills, face hardships to, to do what they're going to do in the long term. So if you don't even try to eat right, if you don't even try to exercise, then you shouldn't have compassion for yourself because what you're doing is kind of being a whistle. You're just giving in. No, true compassion means compassion in the face of a good faith effort where somebody has tried something and they failed and you can, yes, like you said in the beginning, we can wear hair, hairy shirts and flagellate ourselves, but that's not going to solve the problem. If we have compassion for a good faith effort, it actually has been scientifically shown to increase efforts down the line. So athletes who actually show self-compassion where they don't reach their goal in a day, but don't criticize themselves actually show better performance in the long run. Students who are studying for exams, if they show compassion because they didn't quite reach their goal, but they tried really hard, show better academic performance and less procrastination over time. And so you're exactly right. You're not just saying, oh, it's okay. It doesn't matter. No. But when you do fail rather than flagellate yourself, have some compassion as long as it's a good faith effort and try again tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important that's something I've learned too, just through experience. Because when I was a younger man, whenever I failed, I just do the flagellation thing. I'm a, fa- but like the thing was, you went through sort of the <laughs> spiral where you're just like, well, I'm not even going to
2: try anymore. <laughs> and, right. and you don't do and it, and then you're, you you're worse off. And over time, you know, people say, well, you know, Dave, what about guilt and shame? Can't guilt and shame make you do the same thing, which you get from self-flagellation? In very small doses, guilt and shame can give you the kick in the pants you need to, to work harder and do the right thing. But over time, they make you give up because they are very aversive states. And they're very bad physically too. Guilt and shame over time cause all types of negative health effects, inflammatory responses, you name it. Whereas things like gratitude, compassion, and pride, we'll talk about actually lower heart rate, lower blood pressure, increase immune response, give you better sleep. And so they are a lot more resilient path toward doing the right thing than kind of self-flagellating.
1: So how do you experience self-compassion?
2: How do you develop that? Both types of compassion. So there are there are two ways. Um, for compassion in general, believe it or not, one of the ways that we found that works the best is to actually do practices of meditation. You know, if you listen to lots of podcasts or read The Times or The Atlantic, what you'll see is, yeah, if you meditate, it'll it'll lower your blood pressure, it'll increase your memory it does all of those things. But the reason it was created is to increase compassion and ethical behavior. And so we've actually shown using um, mobile apps where they do, you know, people can do 10 minutes of meditation a day. Over time, it makes them control their anger better. It increases their compassion for everyone, including themselves. But an important way to do self-compassion, actually, is to stop and to think about what I say, what I'm saying to myself right now, Would I say that to a friend or an employee who failed? And most times, unless you're a real jerk, the answer is no. We are much harsher on ourselves. And one reason we are is because when I'm saying this to somebody else, I can see the kind of pain that I'm causing them. I can see the distress in their eyes, and that puts a brake on it. When I'm criticizing myself, I don't see that because I can't see my own face. And so one, one tactic that I encourage people to use is to actually stop and think about what you say to somebody else? And if not, what would you say to them? And say that to yourself. Because we tend to just be harsher on ourselves more often than not because we don't see the emotional damage that we're causing. We don't see the pain we're causing. I love that. So meditate, and it's not hard. You know, you can use one of those apps. No, for, 10 minutes a day. Yeah, right? exactly. Or treat
1: yourself how, how you treat someone else if you're exactly. going through a hard time. Well, okay, let's talk about pride because that's an interesting one because when people think of pride, they don't think that usually in a positive way. They think of sort of
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: hubristic a-holes. Yeah. So, yeah. so how is pride a, a pro-social emotion?
2: Yeah. So pride, it always seems as you're saying the odd one out of the three for the very reason you're saying, but if you think about it, any emotion that's experienced in the wrong intensity or the wrong context is a problem. It's just that in pride, we have a name for it. We call it arrogance. We call it hubris or a wholeness, as you might say, you know, even happiness. If you experience it when you shouldn't or in too intense a degree, we call that mania, right? It's a disorder. And so that's no different with pride. The trick about pride is if it's authentic, if it's, if it's calibrated to the sense that I've worked hard to develop a skill or an ability that other people value, that's useful. And feeling proud of that is an important marker, right? It it makes us willing to keep going, to keep developing that skill because others around us value it. You know, when, if you're, if you're a dad or a mom, when you're, and you have a young child that young child's gonna be looking to you when he or she does something. They're gonna be looking for praise. If you give them praise, it marks that behavior as something that this family unit or this culture values. And they become proud of it. The negative side of that we call peer pressure. But the positive side of that is a way that we can encourage people to build skills. And so in our experiments, what we'll do is we'll bring people into the lab and we'll have them work on tasks that we call visuospatial ability, something that nobody knows anything about or cares a lot about. And we'll give them feedback that they're doing really well on the test in a way that makes them feel pride. And when they feel pride for this ability because those people around them are admiring it, suddenly they'll devote more time and energy, 40% more on average, to work toward and hone these skills. Why? Because other people around them care about it. And that must mean it's important. Harkening back to what I was saying with gratitude, what leads to success is that other people value an ability. They want you on their team. They think you're a good partner. And what pride does is it marks an ability that others around you value. And it pushes you to develop that skill and to internalize that this is something important. And in that sense, it's a hugely motivating emotion. So uh, I think one of the the things, the key
1: differences of your approach you're advocating here and say typical approaches. I think the typical approach is self-improvement, self-control is a very individual task, something you do in the, the, the closets of your soul or whatever. Yeah. But you're arguing that if you really want to have lasting success and, and with your self-control, it has to be a, a social experience. So what, what role yeah. do social connections play in all of this?
2: Yeah, and that's a very important part of this perspective. Um, and if you think about it, right, where why did self-control originally evolve? It didn't evolve so that you could save money, so that you could, you know, study for exams, so that you could complete the whole 30. The reason it originally evolved is so that you would develop good moral character. The things we talked about, you would be fair, you would be honest, you would keep your promises, you would work hard to develop a skill that others admired. That's why self-control came about, and it was these emotions that undergirded that. The important part about it then is because it really comes from this social milieu is when we practice these emotions, they not only give us grit, right? They also give us what I like to say. They also give us grace. That is, they, they give us a character that others admire, that others want to connect with. And that in and of itself reinforces our success. You know, David Brooks likes to talk about a division between career sorry, between resume virtues, those are the things that we need to get ahead at work, like nose to the grindstone, be aggressive, work hard, and eulogy virtues, those things that we want to be remembered for, things like being fair, being kind, being generous. And he he laments the fact that we've structured our careers and our lives such that these two are separate. And I think that's true. They're separate, not because they're inherently separate, but because it's the way we tend to think about the world. If you Practice cultivating compassion and gratitude in your life and a true pride in your abilities. Those aren't separate virtues. Those emotions are going to make you behave in ways that give you more self control and more perseverance and more grit. But at the same time, they're going to make you behave in ways that draw other people to you and that reinforce those social relationships and give you a much more balanced success and a a higher sense of well being. One of the biggest problems people are facing right now in the world, especially the workplace. Is people are lonely. You know, more than 53% of people report being lonely in their public lives, especially and in their careers, and it's because of of the way we're pursuing success with this nose to the grindstone. It's all about me. I'm going to focus on my executive function, and we're suppressing these emotions that have undergirded success in the social realm and the individual realm for decades.
1: And that's probably why things like Alcoholics Anonymous, Weight Watchers. Like those things work because you're embedded with a community of people who are supportive and you can experience
2: those social emotions. Yeah, I mean, if you look at them, none of those groups tell you use more willpower to not drink or not shop or whatever it may be because they know that doesn't work. They have things like gratitude journals. They have things like showing compassion to each other and supporting each other, pride and sobriety coins. Those emotions are a stronger, more reliable source. And the reason they build self-control is not only do they make the mind value the future more, but they build those social relationships that reinforce success. So, you know, people talk about grit being important for success, and it is in terms of the executive function route. But one thing we know about grit is those people fail less because they're working really hard. But when they do fail, it hits their well-being 120% more than the rest of us. And it's because they don't have those social connections to support them when they fall. And it's because of this kind of, you know, atomistic, I'm going to do it myself. I don't care. I'm just going to work all these hours and suppress my, you know, social-emotional side. It becomes a very tenuous route. When you do fail, when those hard times come, you're not going to have the tools to help you be resilient.
1: So that could mean, you know, so what you're saying is you need to get embedded in a social group. If you really want to have the, that success with yourself, long-term success, your self-control. So that can be like joining a CrossFit gym. If you're trying to exercise regularly,
2: um, it can be, but it doesn't even need to be. So it, it 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 can be the people who are doing the same thing with you, but it doesn't have to be, it can be any strong social relationships in your life. So, even if you're the only person in your group of friends who's going to the gym, if you have other group of friends around you, what those will do is, is just give you the support. They'll enhance your, your these moral emotions in you daily, which will help you go to the gym. So, think about it this way within a social network, emotions spread. And so, if I'm feeling grateful today, that's going to make me want to invest in other people. And so I'm going to help you if you come to ask me for something, and then you're going to feel grateful to me. And so suddenly you're going to feel grateful because I felt grateful. And that gratitude you're going to feel is going to help you with all of your self-control problems as a whole. And because these emotions spread in social networks, what you find is that groups, offices that have higher levels of compassion and gratitude daily within their corporate culture have greater levels of success, lower levels of absenteeism, less stress. You know, Google did this great study where they were trying to predict which teams had the the best success. They thought it was going to be technical prowess That wasn't it. The number one predictor of which teams had the best success was which managers fostered a culture of empathy and compassion on their teams. What that meant is which teams felt like the others around them cared about them, were going to have their backs, cared about their social lives, cared about their goals and support each other. Those teams did way better. Then did teams where it was, you know, every person on it for themselves trying to you know, outshine his or her partners. And so what I'm saying is these emotions, by simply cultivating, cultivating them, not only help you with your self-control individually, but flow through those groups. They build friendships and bonds that not only help you then feel those emotions in the future but also combat your loneliness. And we know that loneliness is actually, you know, being lonely is about as bad as smoking for you in terms of the years it takes off your life. And so it makes you happier while it also makes you more successful. And I think that's a win-win.
1: Yeah, and does this mean, what would you say to someone who would say, well, I've got social connections, but they're not that great. They're kind of bringing me down. Should people be proactive about the people they hang out with regularly? Or what, what can they do about that?
2: Yeah, what matters, I mean, this is the problem. People are saying, well, why are people reporting more loneliness in an age of increased social connection? You know, I have hundreds of friends on Facebook or lots of acquaintances. What matters isn't really the number of people. What matters is the subjective sense of closeness I have with them. So a person who has two really good friends can feel a lot less lonely or isolated than a person who has 20 acquaintances that they see. And the nice thing about these emotions is, when you practice gratitude, when you pa- when you practice compassion, and even pride, it they reinforce. They've been shown to reinforce the quality of relationships. We want to be around others who show compassion because they'll help us. We want to be around others who, who have authentic pride and have good abilities. In fact, we've shown that in our in our lab. We bring people into teams. And the people who are showing authentic pride quickly rise to a leadership role. Others don't think they're jerks or a-holes. They actually value them as long as the pride they're showing is related to their skills and success. And so what really matters, and the advice I'd give your listeners, is by using these emotions, you're going to find who are your true friends. And even the friends that, that are on the boundary, that are acquaintances, if you start showing them compassion and empathy and pride as long as they're good people, it's going to reinforce those relationships and make those bonds closer. And it's really the closeness of the bonds, not the number of bonds that matters. So
1: I know we've been kind of dogging on willpower. Yeah. But like what what purpose does it serve? If it's not that great and it's fragile in the long term, like why does it does it serve a purpose?
2: Yeah, it serves a purpose. And and so please don't leave this podcast episode thinking that I'm saying you should never use willpower. In the battle to kind of reach our goals and to be future-oriented, we need every weapon in our arsenal. The reason we have it is for the reason exactly that you said a while ago, some emotions focus us on immediate desires. And so what's happening in any instance where we're trying to decide, should I save money for the long term or spend it now, should I go to the gym or should I just blow it off and eat the extra Ben and Jerry's now is on a very rational executive function kind of prefrontal cortex level. We're trying to make that decision and we're also making it at an intuitive level. And so because we have two different routes, we have two different ways of thinking about it. We have emotions that focus us on immediate pleasures. We have emotions that focus us on long-term goals. Willpower does the same. And so the reason we have willpower so we can overrule some emotions if we're showing the wrong ones. The problem is that willpower root just tends to be weaker than the emotional root for the reasons I've said. And so the reason we have it is because it can be useful. It can be a corrective device if we're giving in to desire. My argument is if you cultivate the right emotions, you're not going to give in to desire. But the reason we have it, willpower, is we don't always have the right emotion and so it can definitely serve a purpose it's just that it's weaker and it's and it causes more stress to use that route than the social emotion one
1: okay so what, what you're saying here then is you can use your your willpower if say you're you're, you're feeling angry right mm-hmm. use your willpower in that instance because you know anger is going to help is going to cause you to make the bad decision use your willpower to direct your emotions to one of those more pro-social ones so when you say you're you're angry at your kid right because they're doing something dumb, You can say, okay, I'm feeling angry now. I'm going to use my willpower, and I'm going to think of something grateful or have some compassion for my kid, and then let that— Right,
2: so you're—so, exactly. So, well, two ways. Either in that moment, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to just reflect on something that I'm grateful for that maybe my child did for me in the past or anybody did for me in the past. And that gratitude as it comes online or the compassion as it comes online will actually— rapidly decrease that that angry urge to lash out but another thing that you can do is just to the extent that you cultivate emotions like gratitude and compassion daily regularly they'll short circuit that desire for anger before it even happens so we have studies where we have people you know do meditation for 3 weeks 10 minutes a day We put them in a situation where, you know, using actors, where an actor insults them on their performance on a job, and they have the chance to then seek vengeance on this person and lash out at him. What we find is those who practice meditation daily and report more daily higher levels of compassion, they don't show the same desire to lash out. And so you can even short circuit that problem from occurring in the first place if you cultivate these emotions more regularly. I love that. Well, David, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, the easiest way is to go to my website, which is com, or my Twitter, which is uh, at David Desteno, all one word. Awesome.
1: Well, Dave Desteno, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. My guest today was David Destino. He's the author of the book, Emotional Success. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at daviddestino.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash emotional success, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.